0: reports of barricades in Baghdad that are coming down because they haven't been needed in the last, these last few months. And it, it's just like ISIS has been this horrible, horrible cure for hatred and sectarianism. You're more likely to see a head covering in Canada than you are in Mosul these days. You, it's just, you know, it's, it's just, um, it's a different thing. Universities are being built. Churches are being rebuilt. And so I don't understand everything that God is doing there and, you know, I'm, I kind of dread sharing this with you because then you're going to ask me all kinds of questions where I won't know, you know, later. Um, I'm, I'm that drip under pressure. But I, I can tell you that God is at work. Last year, also in Syria, uh, after the, a chemical weapons attack, it has been our privilege through one of our uh, ministry partners to provide um, training to 3,000 people on what to do in the event of another chemical weapons attack. And we also provided uh, 2,000 cooking kits and 2,500 hygiene kits uh, and food packs to feed a family for one month, 2,000 of those. Um, And Syria is another place where I I hear reports of God hasn't forgotten them. Two years ago, we had a privilege of working with a couple of churches, one in Damascus, one in Aleppo. Um, And they have experienced tremendous persecution, and, uh, and yet God has been working. This one particular church, you know, was 200 people before the Syrian war, and then after this, and during the Syrian war, it dropped down to about 80 people because most of the people left. But since then... People have been flooding into the church uh, and multiple services and packed out in this church in Damascus of people that are just desperate for God and desperate for for a change. And this one particular pastor, he was sharing how, you know, he, as he's driving around doing his ministry, this is one particular spot they call the, the devil spot where he has to gun the car and race as fast as he can because there are snipers shooting and... Um, So I don't know what your pastoral calls are like, Kendall, but I pray that you never have to do that. (laughs) Do we have any snipers in here? (laughs) Um, Anyways, um, it, it just encouraged me that in spite of that, God is at work. In the midst of the darkness, here's a letter from two years ago. In the midst of the darkness, spiritual revival is taking place in Syria. And people are running into his arms. Churches are running almost 24-7. As evil arises, so increases God's grace and the hope of the gospel in the hopelessness of this world is powerful. So that's some of what we did. We also are involved in marginalized peoples. We work with uh, this wonderful ministry in in Chennai, India that rescues abandoned uh, women with cognitive disabilities that are abandoned by their families and provides training and hospice and care. And, and we have a wonderful ministry that works in Kyrgyzstan and in Tajikistan, again, with, uh, to help prevent human trafficking and, and women at risk and children at risk. Wonderful, It's just wonderful, a privilege to just be... The best part of my job, believe it or not, okay, believe it, yeah, I don't stare at... Staring at spreadsheets and wiring money isn't that fun, but partnering with people who are doing incredible things that are risking their lives, they are pouring out their lives on a day-to-day basis. That is the privilege. That is the thing that makes me excited to keep doing this after 15 years. And we're, we're recognizing that it's not just going to be done by our strategies and our plans, but it's going to be done by a move of God. One of my colleagues uh, who works with us in Cairo, Egypt, he, in his spare time, he, re- he runs prayer conferences. Last year, they ran a prayer conference in Turkey where 700 people from across the Muslim world came to intercede for the Muslim world. And um, two weeks ago, they had another one in Thailand for, uh, again, focused on the Muslim world. So workers from all across the Muslim world came to this conference and prayed and intercede for God to move And I I sometimes hear stories of what happens as a result after that, and they're encouraging. Um, My friend Andrew has said, you know, how he got into this ministry was things became so difficult in their ministry in Cairo, and door after door kept shutting, and people were getting thrown out of the country, people were getting thrown in jail. And there was a time where all they could do, all they could do was pray. And, and then the church in Egypt, the churches, the Christian believers that have been there for centuries, the Coptic believers and uh, various Protestant uh, believers, which is a small minority of the country, started to begin to have a vision for reaching their Muslim neighbor. Uh, I remember uh, years ago talking to uh, one missions leader who was... Sharing with a, uh, an Egyptian believer, saying, "You know, you should reach out to your Muslim neighbor. You, they're, they're, you know, aren't you afraid that they're lost, that they're going to hell?" And he said, "That's the best place for them. You know, just this." But now, but the church in Egypt has begun to take up on a heart for reaching the Muslim world, mm-hmm. and you know, there's they're going out into all throughout the Muslim world um, and and sharing their faith and sharing their faith in Egypt, and so that. Part of that, they think, has been birthed out of this prayer movement of just people. There's nothing else that we can do. Every door has been closed to us, but we will pray. And so those are the kind of people that I get to work with, and I'm humbled to be part of. Um, And sometimes we don't always, sometimes even the setbacks, you think, Lord, what was that? A number of years ago, we had this great work in Lebanon, and uh, our director was kicked out of the country. And you know, and we spent a lot of money getting this office set up, and they were working with Syrian refugees and with Palestinian refugees, and um, they had this all kinds of great humanitarian stuff, educational programs, and we. I thought, Lord, what was that all about? You know, it was like all for nothing. And then a couple of years later, I heard some stories of, of people that were working, Palestinian believers that were working with Millennium, that were going into, into the various Palestinian refugee camps and working in the, in the Syrian refugee camps. And because of their faithfulness, because of what they did while they were delivering aid that our organization provided, they, they have seen a movement of people into the kingdom. They've seen churches established in Palestinian refugee camps throughout South Lebanon and, and along the Syrian border. And so, you know, what I thought was a failure, what I thought was nothing was going to come of this, mm-hmm. God, God brought fruit. Our calling, our calling is in spite of our weakness or even because of it, is to step out and take risks for God. And there's this wonderful quote I want to leave you with this morning. I was recently rereading, it's a children's book, uh, The Horse and His Boy. It's one of the uh, Chronicles of Narnia stories. And I don't know if you've ever read any of those books or or read them to your children, but uh, uh, there's this one little story where this talking horse who's being really silly and talking about Aslan, which is this lion who is, if you've read any of the stories, he's kind of like a Jesus figure or a Messiah figure in the books. uh, He's saying, you know, well, he's not literally a lion. He's just some sort of a... Anyways, he was... (laughs) (laughs) While he was talking, making all these theological wonders about, you know, Aslan appears behind him. And as he suddenly, Whoa! <laughs> and Aslan says to him, "Come closer to me. Don't dare not to dare." And I thought, thought of that expression, you know, "Don't dare not to dare." God is calling us to come closer to Him today, and to be part of what He's doing. And we must somehow, with whatever it takes, dare to come near to him, and he'll, uh, he'll do wonders. So thank you for allowing me to be here. I'm going to ask Laurel to come up now. Um, pray for us. Pray that the Lord would open up doors and favor where we work and for perseverance for us to grow and adapt. And now the better part. <laughs>
1: Sets me as well or poorly, depending on how this part goes. Um, my job now is to set us a little bit in context. Um, who we are, where we've come from, what happened in the middle between then and now, how do I find or we find ourselves before you? That, those bits, that's, that's my job. Um even, even as a child, I desired to be a missionary. I listened to missionaries come into the church and talk, and I was fascinated and drawn by their stories, by the, the exotic context from which they spoke. And I planned early on that that's where I was going to be. My first strategy was to try to convince my parents to become missionaries. I thought, here's a simple way. If they would go, they would take me with, and I would get to grow up as a missionary kid. I, I just thought that, was, that would be pretty fantastic. My gift, or I tried to give a gift to my kids. I thought, I will give them the best gift that I know. I will make them missionary kids. Um, so I started to make plans. Sort of I had my 10-year plan, and at high school, even, I had already decided that I would go to Bible college, I would graduate, I would transfer to university, I would get my teaching degree, I would go overseas, I would become a teacher, I'd be useful in the work. If somebody was out there who wanted to join me in my 10-year plan, they were more than welcome. But they had to already be sort of heading in the direction, enter John. Um, who also had the same sorts of dreams and visions as he was. So he was approved. (laughs) And we, together, set our goals and our dreams for Indonesia. To live there, um, we led a church planting team for five years in Indonesia. It was a a small island just east of Bali called Lombok. In Lombok, we did the early stages, language learning, drawing a team together to work in context, and, um, and that was where we wanted to live out our life. We planned to um, raise our children there, um, live out our lives there, give ourselves to that work and those people. But things didn't work out quite quite that way um when caleb our son was born and he was born in indonesia um he was diagnosed with autism and and then a year later our daughter was also diagnosed with autism so one diagnosis brought us home to canada to try to fix the problem so Mm, we didn't know very much, we just knew that we had a challenge, and we came back and we thought, we'll give it a year, we'll sort this out and we'll head back into some other context. So within that year's time, then Emma was diagnosed as well, and so her diagnosis fixed us in Canada, and we began the long and complicated journey of early intervention and um, dealing with our, our situation. That was. 18 years ago now, the pictures that you saw of them, and I'm sorry that John wasn't in those pictures. I kind of thought that maybe he had pictures of himself, (laughs) or at least he would be standing here when those pictures were shown, but that was 18 years ago. Caleb is now 21. He'll be 21 in two weeks, and Emma is 18 The irony of us standing before you this morning, speaking about missions, is that our context is really fixed. We haven't been here to visit uh, Barb and Kendall and family and you in nine years since Leisha and Connor were married. That was the last time we were able to get here. And our children didn't come with us then because they don't travel very well. Um, so our our world is very fixed, and it feels ironic to me that here we are standing before you to challenge you to expand your understanding of the world and your understanding of mission. The team to Liberia is going shortly. Um, Caleb and Emma are nonverbal. They are uh, severely affected by their autism. They will always need support throughout their lives. And our lives with them have been filled with joys. There's marvelous, unspeakable joys that John and I experience with our children. And there are horrific and horrible sorrows that go along with the journey. journey. Um, And in many ways, our lives have been more about autism than they have about mission. Um, Except, except this. That when God invites us into mission, to to join with him in the journey of sharing the gospel of Jesus and the love of Christ, um, he asks us to offer up our lives. Not the imagined life that we thought we would live, not the the fantasy or the schemes and plans and dreams and goals that we set before us not the settled things that i thought i was going to do but our real lives romans chapter 12 verse 1 reads in the message translation take your lives your ordinary everyday lives your eating drinking working, walking around lives and offer them to God as an offering. So millennium was birthed out of the context of our ordinary lives. After we were returned from Indonesia. Um, And I don't want, please don't hear, please don't leave here, even though Kendall has just said that we're their heroes. Don't Don't believe that this is in any way spectacular. Um, Romans 12, verse 3, a little farther on in that chapter, it says, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment according to the measure of faith you've been given. Our measure of faith during those early years when we came home to deal with the diagnosis and the intervention for our children was so small. It was negligible. It felt inside out. It felt like we had lost everything, that we didn't know who God was anymore because we had had chosen to do what we thought was the biggest thing that we could do um, in response, in obedience. Um, But Jesus knows that size is rather insignificant. We think big is better. He says that the faith of a mustard seed is enough. The faith of a mustard seed, or maybe what he's saying, to do a little play on words here, that the faith that that we can muster is enough for him to work with. Do not overlook that faith formation works in tandem with God's working in us. So as we desire to reach out, taking, mustering enough faith to do a simple something, God is in turn working back in us and doing his work, bringing us into fullness um, in him. And he desires to do it, and he delights to do it. He's more concerned with our humility than with our heroics. We think a lot about heroes in these days. Screens are filled with heroes. We want to do something fantastic and significant with our lives. But do not think of yourself more highly than you ought speaks of humility. It's embedded in a passage about gifts, about using, about participating in the body of Christ. So what we find... um, And, sorry, the... The, the, the act of humility, the real lives, that's where we find our humility, isn't it? I mean, we can put on a front, we can pretend that it's something like this, but in your own home, with your own people, in your own place, dealing with your own stuff, it's hard to be false. It's hard to show ourselves. And the stuff that we see there isn't always... It isn't always good. Even when our intentions, our desires to move on are good. The same chapter says love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. So the life in mission pushes us always to change and to adjust and to move forward and to stretch as God stretches us as we plant that seed of faith. It will challenge our politics. It's not easy to give up those sacred spaces. And I'm speaking of whatever our politics are. We start someplace and the gospel, the law of love, requires us to move to another place. It requires us to respond to grace and to God. It will challenge us in our economics. No matter where we live, at what level of economics we're living in, it just will you can count on it. It will challenge our semantics about our definitions, about what we think of God or who he is, who we think others are, and who... Um, and who even who we believe ourselves to be. It will change us. It will cause us to grow. Um, that bit of mustard faith grows in God's hands, something small becomes something big, and it's, all no, it's also no longer what it was, right? When a, a seed dies in the ground, it's never, ever, ever any longer a seed. It becomes a flower, a tree, the grass, the wheat that grows in the field. It becomes something else. What God does in us, when we give ourselves to him, when we offer up our ordinary, everyday lives, he transforms us. He transforms us. We were devastated, devastated when Caleb was diagnosed with autism. It was horrible and awful, and there's things about it that are still horrible and awful. We were destroyed, frankly, when Emma was diagnosed with autism. Everything about how we had planned our lives was changed. It took years and years and years to let it soak in, soak out, trust that it would be something different. But you take your life, you take. The life that you have, not the life that you thought you were gonna have, not the life that you're planning to have once you get everything settled out financially and blah blah blah. You take the life that you have and you offer it to God and you let Him move it way. We're made for humility, not for heroics. We're made to begin and to trust and to be made into something so that our love may be sincere. So John spoke of the fabulous stories. He spoke the stories that the missionaries hear, and some of us, this is me, this is me sitting in church listening to fantastic stories thinking, "Oh, I want to go, I want to go there. So let me give you some ordinary everyday stories. Quite a long time ago now, when Caleb was about between seven and nine, I can never quite remember when it started, but um, he he began to um, practice self-injurious behavior. So he was, what set it off, we're not sure, but whatever it was, he experiences a great deal of anxiety and he's introverted and quiet and quite gentle by nature and he turns it inward on himself. So, at the height of that first cycle of self-injurious behavior, he was hitting himself upwards of 600 times a day. He was covered in his body, in his head, in his chest, in his arms with little bruises. And we, we didn't know what to do we didn't know where to turn we didn't know how to stop him because if you tried to stop him it would it would burst after that it would work you know you can you can strong arm a 7 year old but once you let go it would just flurry again so we got an appointment to the psychiatric outpatient thing at children's hospital and we took him in there by that time by the time we got the appointment the um the hits had turned to screams so I had been, I took him into the appointment, and I was driving back toward Langley, down Highway 99 in Vancouver, and on this, this road, um, there's a, it's a really nice place to spot herons. I know you have herons here, so um, I just, I, herons are my favorite, and so I would watch along the roads whenever we were driving along this stretch of highway, and I would spot herons, and as Caleb was screaming in the back seat, and I had earplugs in my ears, and I was thinking, there is no way that we can get through this. I said to God, if I could see three herons, I would know that there is hope. That was sort of my prayer. And I thought that that was a pretty good sighting for herons. That's why. You know, it was a little bit of a stretch. It wasn't, you know. So i driving along, and I see one heron and then there was two, and then there was three. And I thought, thank you, Lord, I I did say thank you, and then in my human brain I was thinking, oh, maybe that was just whatever, you know, coincidence, you know, it's not really that. And then there was four, and then there was five, and then there was six, and at the seventh period I thought, no, okay, that's good, I get it, I get it. More than a double portion More than double what I asked for. Um, So that I thought, okay, okay, you love us. Okay, okay, there's hope. Um, And now that every time I see a heron and spy a heron, it will evoke a sense of hope. Um, Frustrated in the morning, go out for my morning walk, there's a heron sitting in a pond. I think, okay, okay, good. One flies overhead, it's good. One, one day, was sitting on a lamppost, perched in the middle of an intersection. It was just oddly bizarre. And I thought, okay, there's hope. God cares about bringing that hope into the context of our everyday lives so that when we give our ordinary everyday lives, he's there meshing, molding, coming alongside so that something like millennium can be birthed, emerge from that context through those offered seeds of faith. The other everyday little story is just serendipity to me. It's just extra whipped cream on top of what we do. It doesn't have to happen. It speaks of a few things. So Caleb is now an adult and he's receiving adult services for his support. So Monday to Friday, someone picks him up from our house, takes him out for six hours and brings him back to our house. It's simple. It didn't have to be anything. We contract that out. It's is cared for, they're good people. But these people are, the first young woman who was assigned to him as a support care worker was Filipino descent. We have um, his supervisor, who's from Cameroon, Africa. We have um, Asim, who just recently began working with Caleb, who's from Pakistan, who out of the blue asked John, I want to learn the Bible from you. saw a cross in our house um, and said, um, you're, you're Christians. And then he is the only one out of all the people who have worked with Caleb who said, he prays before his meal. Caleb has this habit of praying numerous times, he even prays over second helpings. Um, and Asim is the one who noticed that because prayer is important in the Islamic context. So there's opportunity, and that's just serendipity. It doesn't have to be, but this international flavor of helpers brings that to me, and I enjoy it. I enjoy interacting with those people. So to me, that's just a little bit of reminder from God that says, look, I I remember that your heart was for the nations. I remember that you wanted to travel, and that you wanted to go, and that you didn't want to stay fixed. I remember. So, the cross that I'm wearing today is called a Syrian cross, and it's notable for the little buds that exist on the little ends, so as, and the buds represent new life. So out of sacrifice, out of um, the, the work of the cross comes, comes new life. So take your life your ordinary, everyday life and offer it to God as a sacrifice and allow him to bloom you. Bloom you. Not necessarily something like millennium, but something. Something bigger than what it was. What you thought it could be.